Hey, everyone. Before we get started, a quick word about some live shows we have coming up as part of GTM's most important events of the year. First, we're going to be on stage at our 10th annual Solar Summit in Scottsdale, Arizona on May 18th. I, I can't actually believe that we've been doing this for 10 years. We've already got the biggest names in the solar industry confirmed to attend and speak, and we've got a packed agenda of topics that include solar software, energy storage, finance, community solar, corporate procurement, balance of systems, and a whole lot more. And the gang will be there for a spirited conversation, as always. The Solar Summit is from May 17th to the 18th. Then our expo and conference called the Grid Edge World Forum is coming up on June 27th and 29th in San Jose. We're also doing a live show there. Last year, we had over a 1,000 people attend with folks from 60 utilities. This year, we're partnering with the European Utility Week to bring in the biggest power companies from around the world. And as I said, the gang will be there for a live show. You can get a 10% discount right now if you sign up and use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, ENERGYGANG. Just go to greentechmedia.com slash events for more information and use the promo code ENERGYGANG on checkout to get your discount. We would love to see you there. And of course, the podcast is brought to you by the good folks at Keiko New Energy, the fastest growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. It's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand in the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and superior service at keiko-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Hell hath no fury like a solar company scorned. We said at the end of last year that 2017 would be rough for some residential solar companies. 2016 wasn't easy after all, and we were not lying. Already this year, the fifth largest solar installer, Sungevity, has declared bankruptcy. And NRG, once the fourth biggest residential installer, for just a little bit anyway, has divested fully from the sector. Meanwhile, everyone's trying to figure out Solar City's role inside Tesla, and Sunrun appears to be the only big player on firm financial footing. Does this tell us anything new about the feasibility of the national installer model? Then Trump's executive order on climate change is finally here, but it's not changing the minds of any utilities. We'll talk about what's in it and discuss the difference between political optics and reality. Jigger will also share his disdain for the America versus China narrative that often frames this topic. That Jigger is the one and only Jigger Shah, our co-host and president of Generate Capital, coming to us from New York. Hello, Jigger. Hey, I missed you guys last week. We missed you too. And it's, you know, we we, we know how much you love coal. So mm-hmm. I get it every Christmas. <laughs> From the swamp of Washington, D.C., it's Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions. How is the swamp doing these days? Ooh, it's swampier than ever. It doesn't seem to be draining very well. Um, but Jigger, I, I loved being able to ask Marianne last week about the bus ticket out of West Virginia. She was uh, super happy to address that issue. Well, I, mean, I mean, like all of us feel protective of our heritage. I'm just saying, I'm from one of those towns that blew up, and you know, none of my high school friends really have you know a great job. 
Well, I know someone who's got a pretty good job, and that is our in-house expert, our senior analyst uh, for solar at GTM Research, Nicole Litvak. We're going to tap her for some in-house expertise. She tracks residential solar activity, among some other things, and we've asked her here to provide some thoughts on the good, the bad, and the ugly in the business. Hello, Nicole. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I guess there's um, really no other place to start but the ugly here. So <laughs> this month, Sungevity finally threw in the towel after a pretty rocky year that ended with this failed reverse merger, um, a dramatic reversal in the business model, a sales price that was a fraction of what they raised in venture capital and project financing. And I remember the first time that I you know, heard of Sungevity back in 2007, so 10 years ago, and this woman popped up on the screen and said, welcome, we're going to guide through, guide you through the solar sales process and we're going to take a look at your roof. And it was this really cutting edge piece of web-based software that gave customers an idea of what kind of solar system they could house on their roof and aggregated customer acquisition for local installers. So eventually, Sungevity kind of evolved. They raised a lot more project financing. Um, they became a more capital-intensive business and rose up the ranks as the fifth biggest installer in the country. What kind of company did they become and what kind of volumes were they doing, Nicole? Sure. Um, so starting with their kind of relative position in the market, as you mentioned, they ended the year uh, at number five for 2016 with just under a 2% market share in residential. At their peak, they were the number three installer in 2014. And that was with about a 2.5% market share. Let's go back to the, the beginning around 2007, as you mentioned. There were really two unique things about Sungevity. The first is that they weren't actually an installer. They were doing everything but the physical installation. So they did you know, the sales, the procurement, the financing, and everything else. And then they just used local subcontractors to actually install the systems. And then the second thing that you also alluded to was that all of their sales were done remotely. They did everything over the phone or online um, and sometimes in stores, but they never sent salespeople out into people's houses like all the other installers were doing. And then over the years, that gradually changed, and they actually started outsourcing some pieces of the business. So, you know, they used to raise their own project financing. Eventually, they started using companies like Sunrun and Mosaic for some of their project finance. They also started using more and more sales channel, um, channel partners for sales rather than doing all of the sales in-house. And that is perhaps where things started to go wrong. Yeah, I, you know, I think I'd like to start from a slightly different place. I, you know, the problem with the residential guys writ large is that they really thought that growth was a good across the board, right? That they didn't really bother, you know, I guess it's Silicon Valley style, um, with trying to figure out how to make profits. And so, you know, so when you look at Sunrun, who I think is the best of the bunch, Sunrun has always been very clear that what they are is a conduit to capital markets. Right? Everything else is really outsourced to the local provider, and they're not going to compete directly with the local provider. They did buy you know, Rec's solar division, but that was sort of like just because they thought they had to to go public. But in general, they've been very true to their knitting. Solar City tried to vertically integrate and you know, thought that they were going to be good at everything, including making racking and panels. And Sungevity really thought for a hot second that 
you know, you could close a $20,000 purchase over the internet, which I thought was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. Um, but like, you know, Sungevity never found its place in the world, right? What they should have been was the most advanced, smartest lead gen company in the country. That is what they were funded on originally. They never actually realized that that is exactly what they needed to perfect. Um, and so they were all over the map. And that's a point that you brought up this morning, Nicole, and you've commented on in subsequent media pieces um, after the bankruptcy. You know, you said that if they had stuck to their focus in the very beginning, they might be in a much better position if they had just stuck to maybe just the lead generation piece. Yeah, exactly. I think it's kind of hard to compare Sungevity to some of the other installers, especially when you're you're talking about that. Uh, that argument about whether it's possible to scale nationally. Sungevity actually was able to scale nationally, and um, they grew pretty um, pretty steadily, just like Sunrun, which was a, a you know a good thing. But the problem was uh, more so this model, especially in the later years, where they they were doing less and less. And the way I think of it is, they were kind of the equivalent of a commercial solar developer who doesn't do the origination or, or the financing. The problem is in residential solar, you don't actually need that extra middleman. And so, yeah, I totally agree with Jigger that if you could have gone back in time and just stuck with what they were good at, which was lead gen and maybe even the, the sales piece, the over the phone and online sales piece, that could have been more successful. So the other problem I find, though, is that like, is that there is this um, tendency for media outlets like Green Tech Media, but also others, to like really want to root for somebody to become big and then go public and da 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 and whatever else. And and what you find in the solar space, at least, is that the most profitable com- com- companies consistently all day long are the mo- the mom and pops shops, right? The folks who have 10 to $50 million of revenue a year, they're mostly getting referrals from their existing customers. They grow at 10 to 20% a year. And like, and those guys just, people don't want to cover them because they're not taking venture capital money. They're not going public. They're not doing all this stuff. But what you found in the last two years is they have won back a tremendous amount of market share. They certainly have. And we've been tracking that change in market share a few different things probably to dissect there. The first one being whether or not the national solar sales and installation model actually works. And we've discussed that a few different times on the podcast. My take on that is basically that so far we don't, aside from Sunrun, we don't really have any evidence that that sales model works. But I don't necessarily think that that's because that we have full proof that it's because the sales model is the wrong model or the national model is the wrong model. It's because they're scaling way too fast. So Sunrun has the national model, but they're doing okay now. Right. But why wouldn't you come to that conclusion? There is not a single one of Sunrun's customers that has ever heard of Sunrun, right? Sunrun's brand is not ubiquitous. They haven't spent any money on their brand. And and like and when you look at the rest of the home services sectors, they're the same. Like when you look at like, roofing companies. There are no national successful residential roofing companies or HVAC companies or others, right? I mean, sometimes the manufacturers do marketing like Carrier or Lennox or whatever, but all the marketing is done by local companies. I mean, this is the big question, right, Nicole? Yeah, I think there are two real reasons why Sunrun um, 
is has been more successful uh, with this model. One is that they never really had the huge boom that Solar City and Vivint went through around 2013 through 2015, where they were, you know, growing at all costs, spending a ton of money on on marketing and growth, and then you know suddenly crashed or, or went flat in 2016. Sunrun has just always been very stable in their growth, going back 10 or so years. And the second reason is because they've been able to use the local installers that they partner with to learn those local markets. So I've noticed a lot of times when they enter new markets, it seems like that might be where they're using local sales partners and not immediately setting up shop themselves. There are a few different things that I wanted to get to that Jigger talked about regarding the national sales model, but I think it's helpful to draw a distinction between Sungevity and Sunrun because they do have very similar models. Why was Sungevity burning a bunch of cash and Sunrun wasn't when they're both partnering with outside local installers? Sure. So Sunrun actually has two different models within the company. For a lot of their installations, and in fact, more than half at this point, they are vertically integrated. They're doing the sales and and installations themselves, and they've been able to lower costs on that side of things. And then, you know, going through their partners, that's where they're able to use local expertise where they need it, even though it might be a slightly higher cost there. Versus Sungevity that is doing a lot of different things and kind of nothing at the same time. Um, you know, sometimes using channel partners, sometimes not, not doing the installation, different things for financing. It, it, there just seems to be a lot of added costs the way that the company was managed. And we did hear that they had, you know, higher costs compared to other installers. One more question about Sungevity, Jigger to you. I mean, they basically sold their software platform now for $20 million to a private equity firm. Could this story still play out positively? Well, it depends on, you know, your sort of perspective, certainly for the existing investors in in Sungevity. I mean, their entire stake has basically been wiped out and and folks have moved on. So, you know, I don't think that it's going to end up positively there. Um, and frankly, I think that the platform that they, the software that they put together is something that is claimed at least by, you know, Spruce and Sunova and lots of other folks who believe that their platform is also very robust and and interesting. So I, I don't, I don't know how valuable that is. You saw One Roof really, you know, been a big trouble and they were a platform play. So I, you know, in the end, I think that that whether it's the solar space or whether it's the energy efficiency space where Next Step Living was there, um, you find that like it's really all about customer acquisition cost. And the only sustainable model for st- for customer acquisition cost has been a small amount of marketing and a whole lot of referral business. Yeah. I mean, I think it might just be too late for Sungevity to come back as just a software platform now that there are so many other ones, as you said, and you know everyone has their own software. It that was probably something they should have done from the beginning. Yeah, in 2007, they were really the only game in town. I think the only platform was like Asus's Find Solar, which was basically like a database where you typed in your zip code and you could find a local installer. Um, There were really no platforms before 2007 that I really recall. So back to the national solar sales model, I guess my argument is that I think believe that many of these companies have failed because of their desire to scale too quickly. And I share the same sense of skepticism about the national installation and sales model 
And clearly, as many have pointed out, there's just no similar model in other home improvement and contractor businesses. But there is this other element that Nicole and I were discussing with MJ Shaw, who's our head of America's research this morning. And he said that, that, that there's the benefit to the national sales model is that these companies, these national co- companies actually subsidize certain activity for the smaller installer. So they do a lot of the marketing that ultimately helps the smaller installers. They do a lot of the heavy lifting in policy, which ultimately helps the local installers. So there are ways that this national model has really helped everybody in the solar industry. Well, that's obvious, but like, I mean, (laughs) I mean, like, yeah, so like, the national players have allowed smaller installers to free ride off of them. Like, that's not something that investors <laughs> want to hear when they decide to make future investments into a company. Right. And since those original companies, no one else has really been able to scale nationally. Like, Varengo was a huge California installer. They were once in the top five nationally just based on how much they were doing in California. They tried to go to the Northeast, they couldn't. And then, you know, on the flip side, Companies like NRG Home Solar, uh, Direct Energy Solar, um, back when it was Astrum, they both tried to go to California and uh, same thing. They couldn't make it work there. Just, I think, a combination of different cost models, uh, different policy in in those different states. Same thing has been happening with a lot of door-to-door sales companies that have tried to scale nationally and have been able to. The door-to-door sales model is really interesting. It's the kind of the exact opposite of the, the software platform-based approach. And you've tracked a ton of new door-to-door sales companies. Vivint was the original one um, where they started in Utah, and they kind of came out of came out of nowhere. And then since then, a bunch of new door-to-door companies have popped up. Who are they? Yeah, this is actually really fascinating. So a lot of companies spun out of Vivint. So people left Vivint and decided to start their own door-to-door sales company. Some of them were just doing the the origination and then selling them those systems to other companies. Like there's a company called Legacy Power that originates for Sunrun. Uh, some of the other companies were actually doing the installs themselves, like Suncrest Solar. And those all, you know, pretty much scaled into a lot of states very quickly invested a ton of money in their salespeople. And a lot of those went out of business just as quickly as they um, they popped up. And then what happened and what's what we're starting to hear about now is a lot of even smaller door-to-door, I wouldn't even call them companies, it's just individual people starting up their own companies, doing just door-to-door origination and selling to local installers who are struggling with customer acquisition. Yeah, look, in the end, I think this is going to have to use tried-and-true methods, right? Sort of old as new, like Avon or or Amway or whatever, right? So there's a group called Power, and they basically have everyone being um, on commission only, and I think they're up to like 5,000 commission-only salespeople across the country. So I I just, like, in this business, I don't think much has changed since people were selling encyclopedias door-to-door or vacuum cleaners or anything else. I think the internet is great for data, but otherwise, this is really about, um, you know, just old as new business models. Jigger, you mentioned Next Step Living earlier. This is a Massachusetts-based company that was founded off of the back of 
Massachusetts major green energy legislation that offered rebates for efficiency and for solar. And they just exploded across the state and um, started off in weatherization and home improvement and then moved into solar, very quickly scaled up their solar business, but couldn't make it work and later shed it, shed that business last year. And then eventually the entire firm collapsed. And I know that like with many of these other companies, there are plenty of folks from that company that are trying to rise from the ashes and start new similar companies. What happened in your opinion with Next Step Living? Is this materially different than a Sungevity collapse? No, not really. It's just sort of the same thing. It's, you know, you find that um, everybody wants something to be true, but oftentimes it's not. Um, you know, in this, basically, I think we've known for a long time that solar and EVs capture the imagination. Um, energy efficiency does not. Um, but it's such a good, everybody wants it. There's lots of free money out there, et cetera. And they really thought that through like scale and data and internet and, you know, all these sort of newfangled words that they would actually get to a self-sustaining capital uh, customer acquisition model. And they just never got there. So, you know, Braemar and Vantage Point and other folks just kept pouring money into them. And the reason that they failed was one day Vantage Point woke up and said, this is never going to work. And so they were ready to close on a new round. Vantage Point called like the last minute said, uh, we're pulling our check. Everyone else pulled their check and they promptly had to shut their doors the next day because they didn't have the money to pay paychecks. Um, but I think it's the same uh, you know, story as Sungevity and lots of other companies. And it seems that if you have margins as small as you do in an industry like that, 110 inches of snow in Massachusetts that year certainly did not help. Right. That impacted project development and deal flow for them. But I don't think that that's margin. I think that that's burn rate, right? I mean, I think that that like, you know, like there are all these companies where they're like, well, we're losing $5 million a month, but we're going to make up for it. One day, it's all going to come together. And you're right, like the winter and 110 inches of snow didn't... 110 inches of snow didn't help them. But it's the same mistake that venture capitalists make over and over and over again, because these businesses are really made to grow um, through, um, you know, sort of retained earnings at 20% a year. They're not made to grow at 100, you know, percent a year. And when you think about companies like Next Step Living or, you know, local companies in California, I think the, the residential industry has really gone through this big fundamental change in the last year where the market used to be growing 50, 60, 70% every year and everyone was growing. And now suddenly that just came to a halt and you have to, um, you have to know how to grow uh, with low costs and be smart about your customer acquisition and your, your marketing and your spend on all those things. And it's just not possible for all local installers to succeed. Well, and of course, this year, we're going to see a much smaller growth rate, partly caused by problems in the Southwest and a slowdown in California. So Jacob, you'd say that's probably a, more sustainable, right? I don't think it's a bad thing, right? We're, we're putting to work something on the order of 15 to $20 billion a year on rooftop solar. And I don't think that's a small number. So if that number grows at a more sustainable sort of 10% a year or 20% a year, I think that's great. On top of that, when you look at the amount of coal plants and natural gas plants that were retired last year, um, the retirements exceeded the number of new coal and natural gas plants that were built last year. So last year, we actually lost a net of 2,650 megawatts of fossil fuel plants. 
so that you can safely say that 100% of all new capacity additions on a net basis came from clean energy. I think we've sort of hit our milestone. And if we grow at 10 to 20% from that level, I'm good with that. Yeah, I totally agree, especially if it does force companies to be smarter about their costs. Uh, that's just going to be good for everyone in the end. Hey, we're going to stop the tape here and uh, remind you about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are pleased to have them as a supporter. They are one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of Keiko's commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees happen to be U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. That's k-a-c-o-newenergy.com. It's official. The U.S. government no longer recognizes climate change as a threat. With the flick of his wrist and a nod to the coal miners around him, Donald Trump signed an executive order to end the clean power plan this week. Come on, fellas. You know what this is? You know what this says? You're going back to work, declared Trump to the miners. The end of the EPA's climate plan, or the attempt to end it, I guess I should say, has been getting most of the headlines and airtime on this show. Less appreciated but arguably more important are some of the other changes, particularly this downward revision of the social cost of carbon, the number that the government uses to evaluate the climate impacts of its policies and its regulations. The order also instructs the government not to plan for direct climate impacts to its own infrastructure. Meanwhile, there's this new survey out of North American utilities from Utility Dive, and as expected, it directly counters the president's narrative that he has woven this week about energy and climate. First of the order, Catherine, how would you describe it and what else is in there? Yeah, I think uh, that it is very cynical because it definitely does uh, couch everything that we do as a federal in federal leadership as being much more fossil fuel based. And in particular, the language says, you know, we're going to roll back any agency actions that potentially burden the development or use of domestically produced energy resources with particular attention to oil, natural gas, coal, and nuclear energy resources. So, I mean, they really, this is the reverse of the, what they call the war on coal, which is the war on clean solutions. Um, so what I think that this, I want to I want to couch this into what it can't do and what it can do. So what Trump can't do is it can't change the 2007 Supreme Court decision um, and the 2009 finding by EPA that carbon and other greenhouse gases pro- pose a health risk and have to, by law, be regulated by EPA under the Clean Air Act. Can't change that. That is called the endangerment finding. Right, the endangerment finding. You'll hear that term thrown around a lot. And it's actually a point of contention within the White House. Reportedly, there are some folks within the EPA and within the White House that are telling the president to or and to Scott Pruitt to revisit the endangerment finding. And Scott Pruitt has actually argued against that, saying that it's just way too tricky legally. 
Yeah, they're going to be sued every single step of the way. Um, they also can't change the economics. <laughs> they can't change basic economics of solar and wind versus coal and even natural gas. They can't change the fact that most states are going to meet and nationally will meet the clean power plan goals they a lot of them have a lot of the goals have already been met in many states they were not very extreme goals so he can't change that he actually won't bring back the coal jobs and he can't change the facts of climate change i mean it is happening whether or not they say it's happening but what this can do is it can increase cost to consumers. It can continue to manage damage coal communities because it will extend potentially the life of some of the mines and some of the coal plants a bit longer. It can reduce economic competitiveness in some ways, even if you can't change the basic economics. But the biggest thing for me is that it changes the way we're seeing globally as leaders. It changes the optics. And it really, you know, we have a bully pulpit um, as a leader globally. And this really changes the way we're viewed by countries all over the world. Uh, one thing it did not do was address Paris. Um, but certainly based on what this is, we won't meet our Paris commitments um, based on what Trump has laid out here with this with this plan. So I want to disagree with the Paris piece, though. I mean, I I still think we're going to meet and probably exceed our Paris commitments. I mean, Trump, I don't think, has any influence whatsoever on changing the trajectory of our emissions. There was one study from the Rhodium Group that showed under Trump's executive order, that emissions will be about 14% below 2005 levels by 2025 versus like no, the, the 21%. No, the that. caveat matters there. What they said was that if Trump was successful in executing on what his executive order says, then it would reduce um, the progress on emissions reductions. Jigger, but I think the president all, closes deals. Yeah, I mean, he does it all day long and twice on Sunday. While he's on the golf course. But like, I look, I don't think it's going to happen. As Catherine said, he's going to get sued six ways to Sunday. The environmental groups are nothing if not experts at lawsuits. And when you look at the way EPA works and the legal precedent, once an endangerment finding is found or once a regulation is established, the government actually is forced to make the argument exactly the same way. They can't actually say, we now believe that climate change is not real. The Supreme Court has actually already said that they, the a change of administration can't make an opposite argument. So what they can say is we've reevaluated the data, and the data leads us to a slightly different policy conclusion. But they're not allowed to actually just reverse their opinion once a final rule is in place. Yeah, and remember, there's a process in place for rulemaking. So when the Clean Power Plan was done, that process was very long and very iterative, and there was a great deal of stakeholder input. So the, the draft rule came out in June of 2014, and then there was over a year of accepting comments and, and significant changes being made based on input from stakeholders and input from all the states that you know, preceded the August 2015 final rule being issued. So, I mean, it's, it is a long process. And I don't think that based on what they want to do with the staff at EPA, the cuts that they want to make, that they're going to have very many bodies to actually go through this plan. It, it takes a lot of work to get these things done. Well, that was the other most ridiculous thing about this whole thing, right? Like, why would you put the press conference in front of EPA? 
where people have literally spent their lives, like, you know, protecting Americans. Like, why would you do that? You literally took all the people there, whether you like them or not, whether you want them laid off or not, they are going to thwart your agenda in every micro way possible because he literally spat in their face. Yeah, the the invitation um, email subject line said our big day. And presumably meaning the coal miners, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the worst thing is that he has made he has conned these people into believing their jobs are going to come back and they're not going to come back. And I think the industry knows that the industry has admitted they're not coming back. And that to me is the cruelest thing. If he wanted to really be a hero, he could say, look, we're going to give you guys what you need to transition to a clean economy and still have all the guys up there, but then take a completely different position and and be a hero but that but he's not he's he's catering to the fossil fuel industry well so i have a i have a really good friend of mine from college who um is a a, a large large trump supporter and you know we fight on this stuff on facebook on a fairly regular basis and he keeps making the same arguments from the trump side and i keep saying like it's just not how it works it's like that commercial for facebook it's like it's not how it works it's not how any of this works right i mean trump is lost on the immigration piece because federal judges said your intent was basically to ban muslims which is not possible like he really does have free reign on immigration he just doesn't know how to keep his twitter mouth shut the same thing's true with like you know the healthcare bill the same thing's true with all this stuff like he literally doesn't actually want to understand how the government works and none of his people want to understand how the government works which is why i don't bother with all of his bs because it is so easy to thwart him because he doesn't actually understand or care to understand how the government works well, there's a group called the Environmental Protection Network that's former EPA and other agency employees who are putting together a whole host of kind of talking points on uh, because they do know how things work on what can work and what won't work and you know what he can really get done. So that's kind of interesting. And Brad Plumer did a whole piece on this in Vox about how this is literally going to be a two-year effort if if it gets done at all. And it's entirely possible that they don't get it done. And so like, I, I, I honestly just like, I think that the Trump knows how to make a spectacle of himself and own the news cycle, which is unfortunate because so many other stories are not getting into the news cycle these days. But um, I, I mean, I just am not worried about this at all. You know, uh, I, I want to issue a line of defense because we've heard from a couple of listeners recently, which probably means there are plenty more people out there thinking this, that we're covering Trump a lot and that there are a lot of good stories to tell in the industry. I hear you, but we are undergoing such a dramatic reversal in this country um, in terms of policy that I think it's helpful to to talk about the big pieces of news and to give people some perspective on these very large steps in the opposite direction. So I agree that there are a lot of stories, even in our industry, that we're probably um, not covering because this is this is taking over the news cycle. But I would argue that this is extraordinarily important because it's really changing the framework for the way people think about long-term planning. So I, I'm on the record saying it's not important, and it hasn't been important. I was in San Diego with all of the most important finance leaders in the United States at the Infocast conference. Not a single one of them said that their investment plan is going to change because of Trump. Not one. All of their law firms have said that this is all complete and utter BS. And the the healthcare battle 
was done so poorly that they now believe that tax reform is impossible by this president. And so they're no longer worried about tax reform either. Like, I mean, that's how incompetent this administration is, is that no one at Infocast was was hesitant in the least at actually like, you know, committing 500 million, a billion dollars of capital to new projects because they thought that nothing was going to change. I hate to sound repetitive, but I'll just make the point that I've been making since the election. And that is you have to you have to think about climate policy and renewable energy policy differently. So many of the biggest investors and law firms and developers and utilities are not changing their plans. And we can get into that utility survey from Utility Dive, where it's very clear that regardless of what the president does, utilities are not going to change their investment plans to embrace renewables and natural gas and efficiency. However, when it comes to climate policy, the Interior Department is now um, getting rid of the restrictions and mining on federal lands. They are abandoning their efforts to reform the coal leasing process, which is a mess. Uh, they are absolving their responsibility to uh, put a price on carbon and to think about climate impacts when developing new infrastructure. Uh, and then ultimately, we're losing our prestige on the world stage. Another argument that we can talk about in terms of the you know US versus the world or US versus China narrative. But climate policy is very worrisome. Renewable energy policy and business activity is still a different story. So I just want to make sure that we're distinguishing between the two. Yeah, and I wouldn't put this necessarily all in the lap of the president either. Congress is also doing some pretty nutty things like the Science Committee, which used to actually discuss science in a real way. I mean, scientists were on that committee. Um, the chair of that committee is Lamar Smith, a Republican from Texas, and he was impugning Science Magazine as like not legitimate. Um, and there's this whole kind of ongoing battle with what with kind of delegitimizing facts and delegitimizing science. And it's not just the administration that's doing that. And what I worry about is that there's so much of this going on and the narrative is so strong about what's real and what's not real. And, you know, what do we really need to worry about? While climate it, impacts are soaring um, and while the administration is trying to really cut, even pull back money from last year's funding back from the agencies to put into the defense pot from non-defense discretionary $18 billion they want to cut back. And I really worry about our national brain trust, especially in places like the National Renewable Energy Lab, that, you know, I would, those labs are really important for our industries to be able to collaborate within in a way that is an appropriate role for government. And, and I would hate to see those suffer because of this ongoing kind of onslaught. And, and it's all driven by the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, but they always lose. Why? Because the, the those labs are placed strategically in districts that are run by powerful congressmen and senators who will protect those labs because they protect the jobs that are there. I mean, this is a game that we've played for 40 years. I mean, it suggests that like, like now that like the Republicans, you know, are anti-science because they want to protect their fossil fuel brothers and sisters, or because they're actually trying to like help reduce taxes for fat cat donors, that like something is going to change. Like, it's not like this, these things were like, you know, uh, decisions were made by stupid people. I mean, we have the entire system gamed, right? That's why we have Republican congressmen on the Alliance to Save Energy's board. That's why we have all these education things. That's why these folks talk about, you know, how important the jobs are to their districts. I don't think that this is a lost cause. 
No, I'm not saying it's a lost cause, but I am saying we have to be really aware of it and fight back as hard as we can because we don't want things to slip through the cracks. Also, this was not happening during the Gingrich days, even though he did have the contract on America. This was not, they believed in science. He and Nancy Pelosi sat together on a sofa and said, we believe in climate change. Like, where has that gone? That left when Citizens United decision came down and everybody depends on the donors and the donors have come from the bigger industries. Yeah, but I'm just tired of like the Trump narrative. Like, I mean, when George Bush came in, remember they had Chrissy Todd Whitman that ran the EPA. As soon as she was trying to regulate carbon dioxide, they're like, oh, you're gone in a hard second. And then EPA was filled with crazy people to run it. And every time there was a chemical that needed to be banned, magically the Bush administration lost the report and said, oh, we don't think that that's actually something we're going to regulate. And so like this is like this has been happening for years. This is not a Trump thing. Yeah, right. But what's different now is that uh, the climate impacts are materializing much faster than anyone thought. So uh, we, we are moving alarmingly slow on climate, and it's just a hell of a lot worse under the Trump administration. I, you know, so again, I, don't, I would I don't distinguish. Be- I think if Hillary was president, like she would have said a lot of great things. We would have had a great, lot of great policies, but I don't think climate emissions would have magically reduced by 30% the next day. And so like this stuff is hard. This is all physical infrastructure and we're busting our ass every day to get the permits we need and the, the contracts we need and the investment we need to get stuff done. Our, our work, which is where climate and clean tech intersect, is just as hard today as it was last year. And I don't think the Trump administration is having any impact on it whatsoever. Well, and tellingly, 62% of Trump voters believe in carbon tax or regulation, and 75% of Trump voters believe in increased renewable energy. So I think that while I worry constantly about Congress and try very hard to educate them, that some of them are coming around and some of them continue to believe that it's something that needs to be done. And I think when they go home um, during their breaks, they hear from constituents on both sides of the aisle who support clean energy. And I think that will continue. ExxonMobil just came out and said that they wanted the Paris Agreement left in place. Yep. I mean, like, I'm just tired of like worrying about this. I sleep well at night. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about another argument that you hate very quickly. I want to squeeze two things in here. The first is this China versus the US narrative. And a number of people have come out when that executive order was announced and said, well, the United States has ceded its technological leadership to China. Now China is going to own the energy future or the clean energy future. Why do you hate that argument? Or at least disagree with it? Well, I hate it because it's like basically a jingoistic argument. It's basically saying that like, like, you know, Jeff Sachs and then who else said it? I think um, um, Joe, Rome. Joe, Joe Rome said it. And then Jeff Nesbitt, you know, from from Climate Nexus tweeted it out. And basically what they're trying to say, I think the New York Times actually had an article on it. They were saying like, like a good argument is to like pit the U.S. against China. And because we hate China, then like we're going to be more motivated to do the right thing. When the reality of the situation is the U.S.'s supply chains are mature. Like, we don't change that often. We get heavy oil from all these places. Our refineries are made to run on heavy oil. We send our, like, you know, light crude oil other places. China is growing super fast. So they need to get more oil. They need to get more coal. They need to get more gas. And what they're realizing is actually it's so much easier just to be more efficient as an economy than to go negotiate a deal with some dictator in the middle of Africa to get those resources, right? So China is doing clean energy at 
breakneck speed, not because of the planet, but because it's in their best interest. It's the easiest way for them to run their economy is to use our technologies, which they can control and manufacture, as opposed to like what the U.S. did, which was you know, cut deals with Saudi Arabia and cut deals with all these other people, which are not easy for them to replicate. And so and and so that's why China is investing so much more than we are, because they're actually building those supply chains when we already have mature ones. Separately, you see that China needs technology and know-how really badly. And all of it, without exception, comes from the United States. It doesn't come from Germany. It doesn't come from Japan. It comes from the US. We are still the bastion of innovation. Innovation is not occurring in China. They are sort of certainly manufacturing a lot of solar panels and manufacturing a lot of wind uh, turbines. But the Siemens and the Vestas of the world and the, and the, um, the GEs of the world are where all of that innovation is coming from. And they're the ones who are actually like leading the charge on capacity factor increases, grid integration issues. Like all of that stuff is coming from the US. It's not coming from China. Okay, but the counter argument is that the president in his skinny budget proposed eliminating ARPA-E, which funds the coolest uh, most cutting edge technologies and universities and labs that then filter into American companies and um, and impact the rest of the global energy marketplace. And we're basically cutting that off if we follow the president's direction. And those Obviously, it won't happen. Well, no, and, but it won't what happen. you're saying to the world is that we just don't care. No, I mean, that's look, the argument. Look, Reagan said the same thing after Carter. What, what that does is 20 years from now, when the RPE technologies will be ready to go, right, we will have a, a dip in the pipeline, which is what happened under Reagan, right? But it's not like China is going to like find all these companies and suddenly fund them. China likes to buy the bankrupt companies in the US like A123 or other places after the fact. China doesn't do all this dynamic basic research to compete with RPE. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess companies like Huawei or Goldwind would disagree with you. They're doing a lot of R&D and spending, you know, billions and billions of dollars. But I guess the government support isn't exactly the same as US government support. This is something that Tom Friedman um, really talked about a lot in 2007, 2008. And I think he helped to push this narrative of the US versus China. And I've always been a little uncomfortable with it. But I will say, it seems like it's pretty similar to your argument in your book, Jigger, that this is the greatest wealth opportunity on the planet. And countries and companies need to figure out how to harness it. So how is what you're arguing in that book and sort of the philosophy of your career different from what these other intellectuals are arguing about the U.S. versus the rest of the world or the U.S. versus China? Well, there's a macro theme, right? So in the 1960s, we had these economic hitmen around the world who basically pushed U.S. technologies onto other countries and then tied it to aid. And so it was Westinghouse or Bechtel or whatever that was actually in charge of installing all these technologies around the world. But that's gone from macro perspective, like Hyundai and Samsung and all these huge companies, Mitsui, Sumitomo, etc., are all doing like infrastructure projects around the world. We lost that battle a long time ago. And so what I'm saying is that the largest wealth creation opportunity is the deployment of this infrastructure, whether it's electric buses or other things. But the fact that like Sumitomo or other people are going to be 
deploying this technology and investing in it and owning in it doesn't hurt me. I mean, I think that that's how the world order has gone. People want local companies from South Africa, from India, from South Korea, from Japan to deploy infrastructure in their countries and in their regions. And so our our companies are actually selling hardware and technology and know-how like applied materials or GE or other people. And and that's how we make money now in the service economy. Like I just, I don't, like that's a big macro change. I don't think it was ever the case that GE was going to take 100% market share of the wind turbine manufacturing industry globally. Yeah, I mean, clearly this is less of an economic argument and more of a messaging and political messaging exercise. Um, let's go to this utility survey before we wrap up the show. Catherine, Utility Dive released this survey. They talked to hundreds of professionals and utilities throughout North America to ask them what they're thinking about in terms of future investments. And uh, throughout the entire survey, you find that basically what they're preparing for is directly uh, contradictory to what the president thinks will happen or wants to happen. Uh, 4% think coal use is going to increase moderately. And uh, a majority said that it would, 52% said it would decrease significantly. So these utilities are even saying, hey, coal's not coming back uh, in spite of what you do. What else was interesting in this survey to you? Yeah, and of course, who they're responding to are state regulators. So it doesn't really matter so much what the president does. But um, yeah, they are really interested in um, distributed generation. I, a lot of them want performance-based regulation rather than cost of service regulation, which is really interesting. They want to compensate rooftop solar and other DG at avoided cost of generation rather than location-based. Um, so what it said to me is that they are really thinking about this and they know that the system is going to change. And um that I don't I don't think anything that's happening on the federal level really will make a difference to them. <laughs> that's uh, probably the best way to summarize the entire results. I mean, utilities are thinking about all the transformative technologies that we discuss every week on this podcast. It's just really consistent with everything, <laughs> every theme that we talk about in this show. There's a great headline here. Utilities finally agree with Jigger Shaw. <laughs> that's a first and maybe the only time. Um, well, Jigger, what's your story this week for Tell Me Something I Don't Know? So, um, you know, I've obviously been talking a lot about the nuclear sector. I mean, we had huge news this week with Westinghouse uh, filing for Chapter 11, um, which is such a big, 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 big deal. I mean, basically, they, you know, are responsible for or involved in 50% of all the nuclear plants that have been built around the world. And, um, for them to go bankrupt is really, you know, throwing a wrench in the plans of Southern Company and uh, South Carolina, Gas Electric and others who are, um, you know, building these nuclear plants. Um, you know, more importantly, there was an article in Forbes from our good friend Rod Adams, who has a, you know, a great podcast in uh, in nuclear. He's now saying that the, we have to wait 15 years for the new nuclear uh, technologies to get approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And and um, you know, before we see a resurgence of nuclear. So you know, big news in the nuclear sector this week. Yeah, I almost thought that that 15-year window was a given. Well, I certainly don't know that it was something that they were willing to admit. But for, for Rod to admit it you know, as publicly as he did in Forbes um, through a, an op-ed, I think is as black and white as it comes. Catherine, tell us something we don't know. 
Yeah, two quick things. One is that the Solar Foundation just released their solar jobs report, and they have something called a solar jobs map at solarstates.org. And it just, if you want to see where real jobs are, that's the place to go. Um, it's really helpful, um, especially to someone who has to try to give the message to people in a lot of different states. Um, and the second thing I would mention is that last night I had the wonderful honor of being able to have dinner with an old friend of mine who works for Governor Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island. And um, she was telling me how um, effective this Governor's Wind and Solar Energy Coalition has been. And uh uh, governor Raimondo and Governor Sam Brownback, a very uh, right-wing governor from Kansas, who has always been a big supporter of renewable energy, especially wind. They are the co-chairs this year. They're very effective together. Raimondo has um, set a goal in Rhode Island of one gigawatt of renewables by 2020. That's only three years away. So um, it's really great to see what states are doing and that it's very bipartisan and has nothing to do with politics from what I can tell. Well, since we're on the final days of the Tripod campaign, I had one more podcast recommendation. It is a show that uh, has swept the internet and has certainly consumed me. It is called S-Town. It is produced by the makers of Serial. And if you subscribe to Serial, you probably already got the automatic downloads. I highly recommend you download this podcast. And the reason why I mention it is because it does have a climate change theme in the first couple of episodes. You will see what I'm talking about, particularly in the second episode. It is not a climate change-based podcast, but there is an undercurrent theme about climate change um, that one of the main characters talks about a lot. It's just such a well-reported show. It is the pinnacle of modern podcasting and audio journalism, and I can't recommend it enough. So it's called S-Town. If we're gonna be if we're gonna be second to anyone, I'm happy to be second to S Town. <laughs> I, I just hope that people go out there and talk about uh, our podcast, like I just talked about S Town. Um, I'm afraid they're they're two different beasts, though. But we are just thrilled to have your support and your listenership every week. Um, we'd love to hear back from you, so just send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com or better yet, connect with us on Twitter. Ask us questions individually or, or send them to the Energy Gang Twitter handle, and we'll make sure that those get passed around. We, we like to hear show ideas. We like to hear comments on the show, any questions you have. And um, that's going to do it for us this week. Make sure to go to greentechmedia.com events to check out those two big events, our Solar Summit and our Grid Edge World Forum, coming right up where we are doing live shows during the keynote sessions a lot of great networking opportunities and you'll get a chance to say hello to us and chat with us a little bit and hear us argue on stage. Jigger, uh, have a good week and weekend. Thanks. Catherine, always good chatting with you. Talk to you next week. You too, guys. With uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Catch you next week.